Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the third episode of the eighth season of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Uh, before we start today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to Will Porteous, who I know has been waiting for this season of the podcast, but possibly is even looking forward to next season, even maybe a little bit more. Um, and I'm really looking forward to having Will on the show as a guest, pretty sure next season, and I know you're going to love him, even though I'm probably going to need uh, to put a, a strong language warning on that episode. Look, anytime two old English lags start yakking, it's bound to get a bit salty, but you know, it'll be fun. Um, but on a serious note, uh, Will's been a you know a phenomenal champion for the show and for me. Uh, and he's he's a brilliantly creative and very funny fella. Uh, if you're anywhere near Norfolk in the UK and you're looking for a great little indie record store, please be sure to check out Wildflower Records on Church Street in Dis. Anyway, Will's been sharing the episode links for this season, as have the wonderful folks over in the Tom Petty Fans Forever Facebook group. So I just wanted to give them a little love back. I forgot to post a poll about I Walked Back Down last week, but when I'd asked how y'all would rate Free Falling, the results were a little bit surprising. A staggering 25% of you rated Free Falling between 1 and 6. 8.3% rated it between a 7 and a 9. And 66.7% of you correctly said that it's a 10 out of 10. And this prompted Will to suggest that, and I quote, diehard fans thinking it's gash for no other reason than it was a mega hit. It's a perfect song with an amazing story behind it, for God's sake. It's a classic. Now, I will say that I had shared the link to the poll on my other podcast socials, and so I suspect that this wasn't petty fans who were downvoting it, but Will's point has merit, I think. There's a certain type of fan that will poo-poo an artist's you know, most commercially successful record just because they think it's somehow gauche to write a, a big hit. And I couldn't disagree more, and I covered this in the episode, but the reason Free Falling still played regularly on rock and pop radio is because it's a beautifully constructed piece that you can also sing along to. Speaking of beautifully constructed pieces, today's episode covers track three from Full Moon Fever, Love is a Long Road. If you want to hear the song before we start digging into it, I've left a link in the episode notes. I don't actually use any of the music from the song in the episode itself out of respect for the estate and to avoid any copyright issues. So if you're not familiar with this one, go give it a listen before we start. In Paul Zolo's fabulous book, Conversations with Tom Petty, Paul mentions that Mike Campbell had said that Love is a Long Road was inspired by motorcycles. Mike, of course, wrote the music for this one. Now, before we get into Tom's response, I don't know why, but as badass and as cool as Mike Campbell is, I simply cannot imagine him on a motorbike. I don't really know why. I mean, I can't imagine Tom riding a hog either, uh, to be honest with you. But, you know, maybe they're just a very different kind of cool than biker cool. The kind of cool that doesn't try too hard, or really at all, and certainly doesn't need any props. Well... No props other than, you know, a guitar, spotlights, and thousands of fans. Look, I don't know where I'm going with this, other than to say that the image of Mike Campbell riding a Harley is just completely incongruous to me. Maybe it was to Tom, too, because he responds, I didn't know that. I remember writing it. Mike had a track that was very close to what we used, but it had a very different rhythm. Tom also mentions that they recorded this track without Jeff Lynne, who would return to England briefly for a couple of weeks, and that it was a lot more chaotic with lots of drum fills. On his return, according to Tom... Uh, Jeff helped us straighten it out. He was really the one who made it work. Future Wolverine's drummer Jim Keltner was brought in to play drums and percussion, and Tom goes on to say that it was basically musically Mark's idea. I wrote all the melody and lyrics to it, and then all of us had a hand in the arrangement. 
The song's always given me sort of flashbacks to Won't Get Fooled Again, uh, by, obviously by The Who, with the keyboard intro and then those huge power chords. And this has to be the first time that Mike's thrown those, you know, those big hard rock chords and that tone into a composition, well, certainly that I can think of. And it lends a real sort of 80s rock feel to it. Not in a bad way at all, but again, it sounds a little unlike anything Mike and Tom had written to this point. The keyboard part, played either by Tom or Jeff Lynne, but I suspect it's Tom just because of, you know, Jeff being away, um, sits on the fifths rather than the full chords. So maybe a little music theory is necessary here. Uh, I've definitely talked about fifths before, but some of you, maybe you aren't sure what that means. So a major chord is comprised of the root note, or the first, the third, and the fifth. So do, mi, so. A fifth chord, or a power fifth, as it's sometimes called when it's chugged on a really crunchy guitar, is just the root and the fifth. So do, mi. So that initial keyboard part is the playing a B fifth. So it's a B and a G flat. Before you get a nice little shift up in the bass note and down in the high note, which again, just sounds great. And it again has that sort of 80s rock feel like, I don't know, maybe sort of a Bon Jovi or Brian Adams or any of those kind of hair metal bands. But because it's Tom, it also just feels a little different. With neither Tom nor Mike being shredders on piano, it's very, very simple. After four bars, the intro riff repeats, and you also hear the addition of a synth pad again in the background, very subtly. But the volume is very slowly increased into Mike Campbell's first bombastic power chord. And with that chord, you also get the unmistakable sound of real drums. And the drums on this one are pretty high in the mix and sound, at least to my ear, fantastic. I'm pretty sure that Keltner would have played this track somewhere other than Mike's Garage, where most of the rest of the album was recorded, because uh, Dennis Kirk is credited with engineering on this track, so... My suspicion is that the drum part was recorded in a in a, an actual studio. But regardless, it's incredible to think that the majority of this album was recorded in Mike Campbell's garage and that Mike was the sound engineer. In Warren Zane's biography, Petty, Jeff Lynne comments that I'd only known Mike Campbell for his brilliant guitar, but as an engineer, he gave me everything I wanted. Got it going as quickly as I needed, you know? So, one more string to Mr. Campbell's bow. Once those big drums come in pounding along with the chords, the intro goes around for another eight bars. On last week's episode, I commented that I Won't Back Down really feels like a very modern song because the lyrics come in so quickly. This track takes the opposite tack and gives us a fantastic uh, it's a 16 bar intro overall. And it's easy to see why this was used as the tour opener on the 1995 tour, or most of the time it was used as the opener. You can really go to town opening a rock show with this song. So along with those power chords, you also have Tom's guitar with a brighter tone, and I think there might even be a third guitar playing a sort of arpeggiated broken chord in there. And again, for a producer who has a reputation for simplicity, there's a lot of guitar. To quote the famous detective Clouseau, It is obvious to my trained eye that there is much more going on here than meets the ear. The whole thing just sounds so big after the relative sonic calm of the opening two songs. We get a thunderous three-note tom fill into the first verse, and then Keltner just sits solidly on the backbeat on the drums, with the bass following on the root notes, and a little tambourine sprinkled in lightly for good measure. One thing I like about this riff is that it doesn't resolve down to the root as you'd expect. The progression is B, D, A, E, D, A. And the first time you hear it, you're probably expecting it to be B, D, A, E, D, B. So, you know, at the end of that progression coming back down to the root. But by landing on that natural seventh in the back half of each phrase, it creates real tension in the verses. We're also hearing more textured guitar rather than those crashing chords in, in the verse here. And again, the layering of these guitars just fills the sonic spectrum and makes this song feel fat. Maybe even fat with a pH. Tom's vocal is crisp and clean on this one, and he's using what I, I tend to call his natural voice. He's not leaning into the southern drawl, and he isn't pinching his delivery. So he's, you know, he's not stretching at all. 
there's a point later on where he does kind of uh, pinch a little bit. But for the most part, this is right in his sweet spot, right in his mid-range. It's a song you can sing without breaking a sweat. And hey, you know what? Those are nice to have in the set to play live. The song to this point has followed a structure of eight bar sections. Eight bars of initial intro with just the keys. Eight bars with the guitars in the intro. Then an eight bar verse. Now to take us into the chorus, we get a pre-chorus of four bars with a key change to go along with it. And this section alternates between G major and A major before resolving back to B for the chorus. The guitar's back off here too, playing nice ringing open chords with the staccato, you know, keyboard eighth notes also dropped out to create that slight dynamic change. And this changes again in the third and fourth bars as the guitars come off beat and play a syncopated choppy chord progression to lead us into the chorus. It's not a huge change, but it adds a wonderful flavour that wasn't there before. Think of it like a pinch of cilantro in a spicy curry. And for any of you who insist that cilantro tastes like soap, you are out of your ever-loving minds. The last thing I wanted to note here is that there's some sort of effect on Tom's vocal on the line to have each other to hold. I'm not sure if it's double tracking, I don't think it is, or maybe a little chorus or something. It's really light, but it gives those higher notes a slightly more haunted quality. The chorus, eight bars again, then drops us back down to that root B fifth chord. The progression here alternates between B and E, and again, is so densely packed with guitar, but you can hear the lead playing that little lick. The rhythmic keyboard part is back, and we're also getting some fantastic high harmonies on the word love. Again, another little change we get is an inversion of the chord progression in the last two bars of the chorus. The first six bars are B, E, B, E, B, E. And then in the last couple of bars, it switches to E, B. So it stays on the fifth for two bars before dropping back to the root. On this change back to the root, we also have everything drop out for a big three count hang until the snare and tom hit on the four, leading us out of the chorus. And one other thing I should mention, and I don't know if I picked up on this before, but the crash cymbals are mixed really low on this track. Obviously this is deliberate, and probably you don't want a big splashy cymbal sound cluttering up the sonic space. But I thought I'd mention that as I was waiting for a big, you know, Stan Lynch-esque crash on that final note, but what you get is much more subdued. The second verse-chorus pair is a carbon copy of the first, with nothing added or changed. The keys come back in, pounding out those eighth notes, and the bass is plodding away on the root, uh, underpinning that straight backbeat. Again, we get that stop at the end of the chorus. You know, thinking about Jim Keltner's drums on this one, it always reminds me of his work with the Wilburys. When I covered A Woman in Love in season four, I'd commented that you, you don't necessarily need Duck Dunn to play that bass line. It's pretty simple, it's pretty straightforward. You could almost make the same argument that you don't need one of the greatest drummers of all time to play a straight backbeat on a fairly straight-ahead rock song, except when you do, and especially when you can. Keltner is exactly Tom and Jeff's kind of musician. He understands exactly what the song needs and plays no more and no less. But he also has a very specific thing that he does that it's hard to explain if you've never played drums. Yes, he's playing a very simple part, but he's also playing it absolutely immaculately. And we talked a bit about program drums on the first two tracks of Full Moon Fever, but there's not a drum note anywhere on this song that isn't being played by an expert set of hands, and he makes it sound simple and tight, but it's not mechanical or metronomic. He has that uncanny ability, like Phil Rudd of ACDC, to play a deceptively straight groove with a ton of feel and a very specific sort of swing. Trust me, I can play every note of this song without breaking a sweat. I know where all the accents are supposed to be, um, and I've done it. I've played along to this song a dozen times, but if you drop Keltner's drum part out and let me re-record it, it just would not sound the same, no matter how many hundreds of hours I practiced it. Anyway, sorry about that. If you're new to the podcast, I am a hobbyist drummer, so I sometimes end up wandering off down percussive rabbit holes, just to say that there's a reason why everyone 
want and wanted Jim Keltner to play drums on their record. The second chorus leads us into a, a Mike Campbell solo. Guess how many bars? Hey, look at you, you got it. A full eight bars of Mike doing Mike things on his axe. He plays this one with so much bluesy feel, he's putting a ton of vibrato on those held notes. The solo isn't pushed right up in the mix as much as it could be, but Mike's perfect tone still rings through. The progression here is again slightly different, and instead of a one-bar drop that we get in the chorus, here it's two bars that we're left listening to Mike strangle his guitar high up on the neck with a ferocious three-semitone bend up to the last note. We then get the intro progression played again with the keyboards alone first, and then the big power chords and the thunderous drum hits. Guess how many bars? Yeah, you got it again, but it's eight in total this time, not eight and eight. So once through the full progression with just those eighth notes and the and the synth pad, it's a little higher in the mix, and then once more through with the with those big rock stabs. <laughs> All right, folks, it's time for some Petty Trivia. Your question from last week was this. I Won't Back Down was the second Tom Petty song covered by Johnny Cash on his third American series album. Which of the following artists was also covered by Cash on this record? Was it A, Neil Diamond, B, Soundgarden, C, Nine Inch Nails, or D, U2? Well, yeah, this was a bit of a sneaky one. It's a bit of a dirty pool question because Cash covered songs by all four artists in his American series and two of them appeared on the same album. The answer is... U2 and Neil Diamond. So Cash's cover of one from U2's Actung Baby appeared alongside I Won't Back Down on the third American series record. Also on that album was his cover of Neil Diamond's Solitary Man. And Cash added his rendition of Rusty Cage by Soundgarden on Unchained, the same album on which he covered Southern Accents, and his iconic cover of Nine Inch Nails Hurt was from the fourth record, The Man Comes Around. Again, Tom and the Heartbreakers would play as Cash's band for his cover of I Won't Back Down, and that friendship that Tom struck up with one of his heroes would later lead to one of Tom's best opening lyrics. But we'll get to that when we get to it. Your question for this week is this. How many songs from Full Moon Fever appear in the top 10 list of most performed live songs? Is it A, 2, B, 3, C, four, or D, five. Tune in next week to find out. Okay, back to the song. Coming back out of that solo and into the third verse, there's not a ton of change here again, except there's a huge echo slash delay added to Tom's vocal when he sings the word up at the end of, yeah, it was hard to give up, and it lands between the beats. This effect isn't then added to the end of the next line, never enough. And really, it would sound a bit weird because uff isn't a word, right? Well, that's my rationale anyway, but I kid. On a serious note, though, um, up ends on a sharp consonant where enough is much softer and an echo really wouldn't have the same punch. Also, you don't want to overdo it, and if we're learning anything from this record, it's maybe that Jeff Lynne never does anything unnecessary. At the end of this verse, we get the first change from Tom vocally. On To Try and Save My Soul, he does move back into that pinch delivery where he's really closing his throat and shoving the air angrily through his windpipe. I've come to think of this as his refugee voice, but 
Of course, he used it on the first album on Fool the Gain, so it was always definitely there. And there's one last little trick up this song sleeve. You'd be fairly safe assuming that the song is now going to run through to a fade out, uh, just using the chorus to take us home. But coming out of this chorus, we get a short four-bar instrumental break where that chorus lick is played much more overtly and it's brought front and centre in the mix. And after this, we do go back into the chorus, but we also have Mike playing a searing high note solo centred on one or two notes, but really laying into them. We also hear, you know, Tom drop out and let the harmonies take the vocal spotlight. And there's some vocalizations in there. And here's the last little bit of magic. The drums stop seemingly too suddenly. And the rest of the instruments are dropped out to let Mike's last tortured note die underneath the rhythm guitars before a final big hit power chord to finish. No fade out here, baby. It's just a very satisfying ending to this song. Lyrically, this track, it's basically sort of a mini three-act play. There was this girl I knew. She said she cared about me. She tried to make my world the way she thought it should be. We're establishing a dysfunctional relationship where Tom has met someone who wants him to be something that he's not. Yeah, we were desperate then to have each other to hold, but love is a long, long road. So you get the sense here that the narrator thinks that maybe this relationship just needs work. And so, and I recently celebrated 25 years of marriage and can definitely tell you that it does take work. Relationships are very rarely easy or simple. And this is the story that the first verse sets up with the realization in the chorus that love is a long road. The second verse then jumps us forward in time. There were so many times I would wake up at noon with my head spinning round, I would wait for the moon. And they say that comics and musicians keep similar hours. And I've heard Tom's wife, Dana, say that Tom was certainly not an early riser. I do love that line, though, I would wait for the moon. It's such a great way of saying that his character was definitely a night owl. I felt more, felt more comfortable at night. But, you know, this is where things take a bit of a turn and we find out that this relationship isn't going well. And Tom sings, and give her one more chance to try and save my soul. But love is a long, long road. The but in this context isn't a but we'll get there and more of a but sometimes it doesn't work out and it's hard. Um, a very subtle shift set up by the narrator trying to reconcile what he needs with what he's getting. The last verse chorus is then the resolution where the protagonist realizes that this relationship is over and he needs to move on. Yeah, it was hard to give up. Some things are hard to let go. Some things are never enough. I guess I can only hope. And this broken sentence leads into the pre-chorus really nicely. I can only hope for maybe one more chance to try and save my soul. But love is a long, long road. And that's a really powerful last line. It's accepting the agency for change. I can't rely on anyone else to make me happy. That has to be intrinsic, not extrinsic. There's also another little bit of petty stardust sprinkled in there. I guess I only can hope, rather than I guess I can only hope. You could definitely sing it the, the latter way, and semantically, it means the same thing, but the cadence wouldn't work nearly as well. So I always love those little songwriting tricks that the, you know, the cream of the crop, the top table songwriters uh, fall back on and use. Love is a Long Road was the B-side to Free Fall In, and I can't help wondering sometimes how this one would have done if it had been released as a single in its own right. It did receive a significant amount of radio play and reached number seven on the Billboard album rock charts. Now, my album rap co-host John Paulson and I have chatted before about songs that seemingly chart when they weren't singles, and I think this is likely where a lot of these types of tracks end up with a chart position. I do think this could have been a single, but when you look at the five songs that were released from the album, you'd have to say that you probably wouldn't replace any of them, as they all have a specific character in their own right and provide a, a broader look at the content of the record. The track was first played live in Charlotte, North Carolina, on January 29th, 1990. It opened the show that night, and Tom would play seven songs in total from Full Moon Fever. 
I'm going to drop a link to that performance in the episode notes because there's a bootleg copy of it available through the fabulous LivePeddy.com website. It's really cool to be able to hear that first live airing of a song, and at some point I might see if I can collate as many of those as we have access to. Okay, Pettyheads, that's it for this week. No let up in pace or quality on the album so far. Love is a Long Road is a really durable song, and though I pointed out that it has a few sort of 80s rock tropes in it, they're really not overdone and not dated, and I think this song really holds up well in its original recorded form. It's another song with a very simple structure, but with a couple of nice twists and turns in it. Mike Campbell's guitars sound great, Jim Keltner really sticks the landing on drums, and it's a spot-on vocal performance from Tom. Can I rank it quite as high as Free Falling and I Won't Back Down? I don't think so, but this would be a song that I would have been thrilled to hear live. So, Love is a Long Road gets a really solid 8 out of 10. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network, so go check them out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. I'm sure you'll find something there that you like. Uh, you can also check out on that network my other podcast, Seaside Pod Review, a Queen podcast. This is me and my friend Randy Woods, who does all the music for this uh, this show. And we just talk about a random song from Queen's Catalog every week. It's a lot of fun. It's quite sweary. Um, if you're offended by profanity, then maybe don't check it out. Um, but if you're not bothered by that, yeah, come and uh, hang out with us. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Go follow, like, subscribe as applicable. Um, and please, again, you know, leave a review, a rating. Even if it's not on one of the platforms, come talk to me, tell me what you like or what, maybe what you don't like about the show. Uh, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please do it uh, legally uh, and officially. You know, go to Apple Music, go to Spotify, wherever you listen to music, you will find Tom Petty. If you're looking for official merchandise, please go to TomPetty.com. If you're looking for my merchandise, you can go to TomPettyProject.com. Uh, don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook. Um, they're excellent fan communities and they're worth spending some time in. Uh, until we meet again next week, Keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy. And I'll be back with you next week to talk about the fourth track from Full Moon Fever, The Majestic, A Face in the Crowd. Bye-bye. <laughs>